0: Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro
1: Podcast.
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to That Anthro Podcast. This week, I'm going to be interviewing Professor of Anthropology, Dr. Kara Ackobock. Kara also works as the director of the Human Energetics Laboratory at Notre Dame, where she focuses her research in Finland studying brown fat and human energetics. She also co-hosts a podcast called The Sausage of Science Podcast, as well as creating Ruby's lab manual. Um, I'm not going to spoil that yet. We'll get into into the episode, but it's a wonderful resource for children that are interested in learning science. Now, without further ado, let's get into the episode with Dr. Kara Akebox. So we're going to start our episode by discussing an article that you recently wrote for uh, the publication Sapiens, which is entitled Sexism Still Winning at the Olympic Games. And now I know this might be a controversial place to start the podcast, but, you know, this is a very inclusive, um, LGBTQ friendly podcast. And any listeners who don't support these issues, I would just excuse yourself. (laughs) Now uh, this is podcast. Don't excuse
1: them. Listen to this episode. And that's actually a great point broaden your ideas about it or at least question your preconceived notions and if you disagree you disagree but hey Mm -hmm. you got to start listening to other sides at some point in time right yes that's a great point um but you know i just want to clarify
0: this space is You know, this podcast is a space where we, we recognize everyone, regardless of their gender or sexual identity. That is, you know, we are very open here and I think everyone should go read this article, but we are Mm. going to kind of talk about, you know, the, the evidence that she uses, the key points, all of that. So, you know, basically what Dr. Akebak is breaking down in this article is that how high testosterone levels are being used by the IOC, the International Olympic Committee and other sporting organizations to inherently imply that testosterone is the sole key to athletic performance surprise. It's not, um, <laughs> But, you know, she's also referencing how these regulations and prejudices are directly affecting trans athletes, intersex athletes, and as well as cisgendered female athletes who just naturally produce high levels of testosterone and, and, you know, kind of breaks down why science doesn't support these, you know, scientific regulations that the IOC is trying to impose. So I'm curious, what were your motivations for writing this article? And then we can go from there.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm even gonna back it up a step in that that mm. article is kind of like the second in a series of two uh, where the first one talks more explicitly about sex differences in sports and athletic performance because there are so many misconceptions about men are always better than women in every single sport ever uh, and that's just not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there there's a massive amount of bias and misinformation and misconceptions about where are the differences in athletic performance, what they are actually due to and how true are those differences and how much of that is actually due to some inherent biology versus culture and, you know, the the social approach to sports and how we even encourage children at young ages. How do we encourage young girls to take part in sports and in which sports versus young boys? And all of that has a massive compounding effect that has basically led to women being underrepresented and undersupported in supports for, you know, Ever. And, and, and as a, well as athletic research, like you were saying, understanding exactly. how the female body mm-hmm. performs in sports. Women are woefully underrepresented both as I, I like using exercise physiology because that's that's close to the kind of work that I actually do. Mm-hmm. Uh, women are underrepresented not only as research participants, but also as researchers. And so you don't have as many women asking these questions as you really should, because they would bring a completely different and unique perspective to all of this. Uh, and so what what got me to write this article uh, or these two articles in particular, uh, I will be honest and say it actually came from teaching. Uh, so I teach an anthropology of sports class. Uh, I taught it last fall and then again this past spring, and I'm teaching even it again this fall. It's well, good. It's it a, sounds fun. <laughs> it's such a fun class. But one thing that you said about the article, which was a compliment, so thank you, is that I lay out all these different lines of evidence kind of in one place and i try to put it in as an accessible digestible form as possible while also providing the links to the original research or where they can get more information and part of that was my own dissatisfaction of finding acceptable readings for my students uh and, and you know finding pieces that do pull in all these lines of evidence that are again accessible to read for freshmen all the way up through seniors Uh, because the first time I taught this class I had freshmen through seniors in the same classroom and you can't have the same expectations of them being able to to read and understand like the original peer review research that's just that's not an okay expectation you know when you're dealing with four years difference of of collegiate uh, education Uh, and so that was a big motivating factor and it was also came out of discussions from these classes. Uh, and, and, you know, a lot of students being blown away by having the myths that they have thought to be true busted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, they all had this idea that testosterone was the secret sauce to athletic success. And then so learning that it's not and it's not a clear-cut thing was mind-blowing. And if you know, these students, again, some of them seniors have gone through college at a prestigious university still hold on to these myths and misconceptions that means a lot of people are and so uh sapiens is a really wonderful outlet to work with um it is actually a rigorous editing process Mm. it is not technically peer review but i don't know i feel like that piece had like six or seven back and forth drafts with the editor and they have rigorous fact checkers and if they don't like a link you provided for supporting evidence they're like Find another one. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and so I, I I don't mean it to say like they're mean. No, they're yeah. wonderful to work yeah. with. And I I highly recommend sapiens as an outlet for more public facing pieces that people want to do.
0: Yeah. And I mean, talk about the importance of fact checking in an issue like that. Like, let's say, like, that you had some information that was, you know maybe old research or something that you know wasn't actually like up to date the idea that they would actually call that out not that I expect that there was any the idea that they're actually using fact checking for good where mm-hmm. I feel like so many other and like I know sapiens isn't really like a news like outlet but just so many other places that are publishing pieces I feel like mm-hmm. eh, you know we're we're lacking
1: that so I think that's actually yeah. probably just a great thing that that's the standard right. they have for everyone It is. And again, I I fully support people working with sapiens because it's I've written three articles for them now. And Mm. every single experience has been very positive. So I will say that anyway, that has been like, I do a lot of tangents. That might be why my students mm-hmm. like me, because I just, you know, <laughs> I, I just go off on things randomly. But yeah, mm-hmm. they, my students were honestly one of the big motivators for this. And, you know, seeing a need for pieces like this to be written that can be broadly used, not just for public consumption, but also in the classroom. Uh, is mm-hmm. I, I, I take teaching very seriously and I really enjoy it. And so I, I wanted to be able to create a resource that I could use and that others could as well.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's a wonderful resource. And I think too, like we were mentioning, really breaking down the, the biology behind what people lots of times want to say, well, there are only two biological sexes. Well, here is, here is the information as to why intersex individuals exist. Here's the information mm-hmm. as to, um, I didn't write down the term, is it for the, high, for the cisgendered high producing testosterone? What is it? It's andro something. Uh, hyperandrogenism. Hyperandrogenism. Hi- hyper. Hyper. Hypo would be less <laughs> yeah. Hypo, hyper yeah. <laughs> yeah. andronism um, in cisgendered females where they're producing um, more testosterone i just thought it was really great to be able to lay out and then i didn't mention also obviously how it's affecting trans athletes and certain regulations mm-hmm. that they're trying to you know make trans athletes like reduce their testosterone etc just how it really affects like actual athletes and then having athlete stories in there rather than trying to talk about it like as a whole subject focusing on how it's affecting these athletes, I thought was really great because I know personally, like when the Olympics came around, like I felt, I found myself like jumping to defend, you know, these athletes or people saying like, mm-hmm. oh, they shouldn't be in the women's competition. And I feel like this is definitely now, if I ever run into that, it's going to be like, read this article.
1: Yeah. Well, the other thing, the other thing that I find kind of Kind of hilarious about that article and this is a you know sarcastic hilarious i have to laugh at it to get through mm-hmm. the depression of it uh is that the part of it that really addresses trans athletes is something like four sentences long in what's like a five-page article and yet every almost every single oh no i should say every single negative comment about that article it was attacking the the the, the tiny thing i wrote about trans athletes and and not about you know, much larger problems in, in the world of sports and athletic governing bodies. And I always find that interesting of what becomes this hot button issue. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously the sexism in the Olympics is broadly applicable to trans athletes as well. It's just, I find it interesting that people kind of latched onto that one also i noticed you mentioned how
0: the german gymnastics team is wearing unitards they actually wore them at the olympics as well which was awesome i really hope some because i'm a gymnastics fan i really hope some of the other teams maybe consider other ways you know similar things to that but Mm -hmm. oh my god at the olympics i love the ones they wore at the olympics because i don't i hadn't probably i hadn't watched many competitions um, of german competitions before that but seeing them there was so cool um, and then, you know, you as well, you are a power lifter, you are an athlete. And I think that's really cool. I imagine it probably gives yeah. you a different perspective being active in the athletic field versus, you know, not just teaching, let's say something you're actively talking to other athletes, all that, you know, how has it effect- oh, impacted
1: your perception on the issue of sexism in athletics? So I will be, a, well, there are a couple of things. I'm a quote unquote, recovering power lifter at the moment. So I just learned that the chronic back pain I've been having for the past six years is because I have a literal broken back. Yeah. I broke okay. my back six years ago and talk about sexism. I have had doctors ignore my yes. complaints of pain for six years. Um, and I finally Let's got a doctor- Let's talk about it on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, they ignore us. A, I finally got a doctor to listen to me and you know, he ordered up a, a five panel X-ray and he's like, yeah, your L5 vertebra is in two pieces. Uh, wow. I'm like, oh, oh shit, no. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that would be why it hurts. Um, yeah. And But, you know, I, again, I laugh at it because of the rage I feel about the way I was mistreated by doctors for six years, ignoring my pain of one like, oh, well, you don't seem like you're in pain, so it must not be a big deal. Or the other one, you're a weightlifter, so of course your back hurts all the time. And I'm just like, fuck you. Um, I know my body and you are not Preach. listening as i describe what's Preach. going on with my body um yeah. but so it was actually uh, the, the very first sapiens piece i ever wrote was actually about my experience in a powerlifting gym uh at my previous position uh in albany new york and that was a formative experience um in good ways and in bad ways uh at that gym i mean i was there for three years And for at least the first six months, if not longer, I was harassed on a regular basis. Uh, This gym was a, you know, we called a banging and clanging gym. It was meant for power lifters. Everything was covered in rust and chalk dust. I loved it. Uh, But it was a pretty toxic environment. And the vast majority of people there were men, if not all except me. And I was harassed regularly to the point where I kind of left the gym for a while and went to a YMCA because I just I couldn't mentally deal with that Mm -hmm. every single time I stepped into that gym I felt dread uh and then my my lifting suffered at the YMCA because the YMCA didn't have what I needed to to lift well like they wouldn't let you deadlift because people drop Mm -hmm. weights and like yeah Deadlifting is kind of a main lift in powerlifting, uh, and so I eventually went back, and the the harassment was there when I went back, and then it just kind of transitioned into, you know, ignoring me. Like I just wasn't there. Um, you know, I was in this background and not really part of their space in some way. And then something clicked at, at at one point where you know I found a a core group of a couple of guys who were like super accepting, and I became quote unquote, one of the guys. And that's, you know, part of this piece is I ended up being treated like a man um, rather than a woman. Like, you know, they viewed me as like, well, you're different than other women, which is like, you know, all women are different from other women. You know, come on, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, other than that. And then like I became like an institution in this gym that like, men like big strong dudes I had never met before would be asking me to spot them because they had seen me in there working every single day and they saw my strength and they saw my commitment and they trusted me to you know keep them safe and that's a huge deal that's a Mm -hmm. really big deal Uh, and it wasn't until i had accepted the position here at Notre Dame and I knew my time at that gym was coming to an end that I started reflecting on that journey um, I don't know if I had stayed at Albany if I would have ever come to this point because it often takes these you know big changes in life to mm-hmm. look back. Um, and I was talking to my my friend and colleague Chris Lynn about it. And he's like, you should write this down. like you yeah. should write about this because. It was a very emotionally difficult thing for me yeah. and so i started writing it and I, I pitched it to sapiens and i will be honest i'm usually not a very emotional person but every single time i opened that word document and started typing i would be sobbing mm-hmm. uh, both from like you know the the harassment trauma that i experienced but but then like the really wonderful acceptance and support that i ended up receiving and then having to yeah. leave that acceptance and support and go into another unknown gym and likely have mm-hmm. to face the same bullshit that I had just been through. Yeah. Uh, and so that got me thinking about the anthropology of sports because it mm-hmm. was a very, it was a you know self-ethnographic um, ah. kind of experience going through it. And so that kind of started me on that way. And I had taught exercise physiology and biomechanics. And so I have played various sports almost my entire life and have been a part of that world. I'm a sports fan. Uh, And so I'm like, well, I want to start taking a look at this a little bit more rigorously uh, because it has personally affected me in both Mm -hmm. positive and negative ways and in ways that resonate with other people. Uh, So, yeah, that is what's led to all of those sports sapience pieces. Yeah. Well, first off, I'd just like to,
0: you know, give your feelings validation for how you felt in that gym. And I'm really glad that, you know, the end result was a positive, but I imagine that probably some of that release of emotion was just the physical act of writing things out. I mean, you know, it was on a word doc you said, but still like putting the words onto paper and really understanding like how that experience affected you. I'm glad that you got to have that opportunity while you were in a different space where you felt safe and Mm -hmm. you felt like that sapiens was a safe space to, you know, share what had happened. I think that's incredibly powerful. And I'm really, really happy that you had had that
1: turnaround. Yeah. It was like the definition of catharsis, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the absolute definition of it.
0: I think I just want to move on to, you know, all this amazing public outreach and science communication you're doing clearly. Like I am passionate about it as well. That's why I have this Mm -hmm. podcast and I love to give the platform like to others but I also just love to brag about all the amazing things that my guests are doing. So while, while Dr. Ockbach is teaching anthropology at Notre Dame, she's also appearing on podcasts, creating a children's lab manual, which I'm going to send to my mom because she's a middle school teacher. And I think that her kids would love it. Awesome. Um, putting on events. Like I saw that you're doing one on science communication coming up, which is awesome. And, you know, co-hosting your own podcast, which is called sausage of science podcast, which will be linked below. And you're also the director of the human energetics laboratory at Notre Dame, and you're conducting incredible research there. So bravo for all of those things. But when did you start at Notre Dame? How did that opportunity come about? And then I guess maybe what, well, I'll ask it in a second question. Yeah. How did that opportunity come about? Which
1: opportunity in particular are you referring to now? Oh, sorry. Starting at Notre Dame oh like the job like getting the job you mean oh Mm -hmm. um I mean so I was at the University of Albany and I I mean I was completely happy there like I I my husband and I were really settled in and we had set down roots in Albany bought a house we were ready to stick around and stay where we were uh and uh I have family here in South Bend Indiana my brother is in the history department at Notre Dame and then um that's awesome uh, my sister-in-law is in the sociology department and I have a niece and a nephew. The niece is the reason for that lab manual that you just brought up. Oh. Um, and I wasn't even looking at the job market and a friend sent me a link to the, to the Notre Dame job market and said, you'd be a good fit for this. And I was like, oh shit, I'm gonna have yeah. to apply. <laughs> like, and it's not like I didn't want to go to Notre Dame. Like yeah. it was never about that. It was more just, it, it became this really, actually it was a, a horrific year because of this, because the emotion of the family part of it was wrapped up that like, if I don't get this job, I feel like I'm letting my family down. So it was, it was a very, it was an upsetting year um, and and very nerve wracking for many things. But, you know, people in academia don't often have the chance to live and work in the same location as their family. Like that is just not a thing that happens very, it's hard enough just getting a spousal hire, much Mm -hmm. less having, you know, the the, the other parts of the family be, be in the area too Uh, and so I went through the application process as you know one does and I kept thinking I was going to get cut at every single step and I just kept moving along through and moving along through and uh, the offer came in and uh, like right this is it Mm -hmm. (laughs) we're picking up and we're moving and we're going to South Bend Indiana and so I mean it's it's a bit of a dream because this is a really wonderful university with really excellent support for, for faculty and graduate students. And, you know, like I dropped my niece off at school this morning. Like that's so great. Yeah. It's the kind of thing that I, I get to actually have a real relationship with my niece and nephew now, which honestly, if we are honest would not have been possible if I were still in Albany. Yeah. And that not to the level where you're going to have such an impact on their lives and, mm-hmm
0: you know, you mentioned that lab manual, you made it for your niece. What was the story about that? I had no idea that it had connections to your niece.
1: Yeah. So it's called Ruby's lab manual. Ruby is my niece. Wonderful. Um, yeah. So she's uh, going to turn seven this October, but her, her, for her sixth birthday. So basically a year ago, this all started a year ago, Gabby. Wow. Because it was in the pandemic, my brother and I like started planning Ruby birthday stuff early because we wanted something yeah. fun to think about. Like, yeah. let's talk about cake options months in advance. when <laughs> We both know Ruby is going to change your mind about what cake flavor she wants, but you know, you focus on the happy during yes. the pandemic. Um, and I'm like, well, you know, what does Ruby want for her birthday? And I had gotten her, I don't know, months before that, you know, one of these like pre made science experiment kits that you did buy on Amazon. Yeah. Uh, I had one. Loved it. Yeah. Like she loved it. But I'm sitting here going through, I'm like, this is crap. Yes. <laughs> a terrible science experiment kit and I am insulted as a science scientist that this is (laughs) what they are teaching children um and so I was really upset like as she and I were going through it but I hid my upsetness so that she could still enjoy all the stuff we were doing Mm -hmm. and I was just delighted she was engaged with it uh and so my brother told me that she wanted a new science kit and so I'm like oh I'm gonna have to go on Amazon and I'm gonna be really annoyed. And I did. I went on Amazon and I was really annoyed because I Mm -hmm. wasn't happy with anything that I saw because there was always this like conflation of magic and science. And like, it it seems like people feel like they have to market science as magic to appease and and excite children. And like, no, kids are natural scientists to begin with. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's just tap into that and so I'm and like, they always it. ask the best questions too right so many good questions uh so i'm like fuck it i'm gonna make my own this is uh, for anyone who knows me this is a very typical Kara thing to do and, and just like see that there's an issue decide i'm going to do something about it and then get in way over my head and have to <laughs> get myself out of trouble and so like over the next month and a half uh, i would spend my evenings like scouring the internet for like kid friendly experiments and then I compiled this lab manual and I compiled it in a way that I thought was accessible to children, but also respected the science and mm-hmm. the scientific method. Because I lay things out with goals and then there are cautions and then, you know, then there's your materials and your methods and your instructions. And then there are leading questions of like, right, so what, what are your predictions of, of what do yeah. you think is going to happen? And then like, here, take notes, what actually happened and why do you think it happened that way? Uh, and then after the experiment is an explanation of you know, what science actually went on. And then I provide an example of a woman scientist that actually does that kind of work. Uh, You know, Ruby, uh, (sighs) she is a girl. And I always worry that there are not enough, you know, women role models in science, or at least those are not the ones that are promoted. Those are not the ones that you hear about. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to be sure that she was able to connect women scientists doing science and that they are real and they are there and you can be one if you want. Uh, And so, yeah, it ended up being... I don't know how many experiments. There have been like two or three three expansion packs. There was a Halloween experiment expansion pack, Thanksgiving, and I think a winter holiday one as well. Um, And so I don't know, there's like 35 or more experiments uh, and everything. And so I was really proud of the work I had done uh, when it was all said and done. And I just took a couple of snapshots and posted it like on Twitter. And I woke up to like 1200 twitter direct messages of people asking for access to this and i should have expected that yeah Uh, i mean i should i don't have children of my own and so like i was I was vaguely aware of, you know, the stay-at-home orders and children having to be, you know, online educated during this time period, but it never clicked in my mind that parents would like, want this. Or yeah, like, you're I- like, I'm doing this for Ruby, you know? Yeah, exactly. And it just, again, a stupid, naive thing of like, I totally should have expected other people would have wanted this. And yeah, Twitter blew up, <laughs> and I, I, like, I had to shut things down for a while because I couldn't handle like how many messages I was getting. And so the, the tech folks at Notre Dame were really, really wonderful and helped me get like an ultra compressed version of, of mm. the lab manual that would be easy to download um, for folks who might have really slow internet. I was even contacted by a book publisher, but I'm like, no, I don't want people to have to pay for this. Like, yeah. And I shouldn't earn money. I just pulled experiments off the internet and you know curated and tailored like this. Mm-hmm. I don't deserve cash for that. Um, and I wanted it to be freely available to everybody. And then uh, I work with the, the science policy initiative group here on campus, which is a, a graduate student led group that works on, you know, science communication, working with policymakers to educate them on science issues as well. And we decided that we wanted to try to provide the lab manuals and then full on kits with all of the supplies to a local school here, uh, say to Dahlbert school. Uh, And the other cool thing about the school is it's got a high population of Spanish speakers. And so we were able to get a bunch of funds from Notre Dame to translate the lab manual into Spanish, as well as purchase all of the supplies. And we were able to deliver enough manuals and kits for grades one through eight at that school. That's incredible. Uh, Yeah. And Notre Dame also collaborates with a few schools out in California, actually, um, where they do typically these science camps over the summer, but you know, obviously because of COVID things were weird. And so we did a pared down version of the kits and sent them the full manuals and sent them these kits so that they could do experiments as well. And so it's just been, you know, one of those crazy side projects that was a side project and then blew up into something massive.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you have to think about like, let's take that one school loan that you sent science kits to Mm -hmm. like the one local school how many children's lives you directly impacted whether they choose to be scientists or not those skills and that inquisitive and that like why is this happening what might mm-hmm. happen like you've directly had such an impact like I'm I'm lost at a loss for words because are gonna that's make so me cry because cool. I haven't
1: actually you thought have. about it that way I haven't oh thought about it that way and that sorry, I am actually no, tearing up about no. it. Um, so thank you for that. That's yes. really,
0: that's a very and, nice acknowledgement. And my cousins, like they're going to hear about this. My mo- Both my parents are teachers. My dad teaches high school. So I don't know if, it, I don't think it probably would have applications there, but my mom is a middle school teacher. And like I said, I have lots of young cousins. So I just mm-hmm. think it's wonderful. We were talking about, you know, this is, we had um, one of my cousins lost his little brother -hmm. And it's actually his heavenly birthday today. So
1: heartbreaking. Oh my God.
0: Happy heavenly birthday, Rye Rye. But you know, they his mom was like, we want to keep bentley busy and we want to keep him active so let's maybe like someone hop on zoom and do an experiment with him or someone like let's do like um a puzzle together so this i think is like gonna be perfect they're gonna love that and definitely really impactful and so just so you know like i said whether whether it's that it inspires them to be a scientist whether it inspires them to ask questions or whether it just keeps them busy during this
1: pandemic like it it has so many effects that are amazing and I would even encourage you to share it with your dad as a high school teacher, because yeah. you never know what like elementary school outreach that high school is doing that they could use yeah. that lab manual. And like, I worked at the public library as well, doing grab and go bags uh, of experiments of a single yeah. experiment per bag. Uh, so yeah, definitely share it because you never know what I might will. come out of that. <laughs> I will. And I'll also share it like
0: on Twitter and everyone that's listening right now, like, how do I get my hands on this? It's in it's the, freely it's, available. Yes, right it's there. on her website. It'll be in the description. Like don't worry, we'll make sure you have access awesome. to it. Yes. <laughs> Good. Thank you. Thank so you. So now yeah, now that we've kind of touched on that, you know, we touched on how you started at Notre Dame. I'm really excited to dive into, you know, the awesome research that you're doing, which, you know, comprises so much of your life. Additionally, I'm sure aside from all the mm. science communication and you know, where should we start? I guess maybe what inspired you to pursue research on cold climate populations and how that kind of fits into your work at the Human Energetics Laboratory?
1: Yeah, so there are two things um, and they're both like personal choices (laughs) in so many ways. Uh, So, I mean, part of it's built off of my my dissertation work which looked at humans in extreme conditions and we, we covered all different seasons and it was in the Rocky Mountains trying to see how many calories individuals were burning and how that changed, given the, the you know, the environmental factors they were facing and their physical activity levels. Um, because I just think that's kind of fascinating. I, I enjoy how bodies work and I want to understand how we are able to, to live and cope with, you know, environments that we technically didn't involve in. Like how in the hell are we living you know at the arctic circle when we yeah. evolved in africa and then spread out and you know intermingled we can get into evolution stuff at some other point in time um but during all of that field work i'm like yeah i like the cold a whole lot better than the hot like if i'm conducting field work Which climate do I want to be in when I'm conducting field work? And I am totally a cold climate person. Give me snow, give me ice, give me long periods of darkness. uh, And that is my happy place. And uh, so that's why I decided to pursue cold climates. And if we're, if we're being completely honest, you know, from the scientific perspective, uh, cold climate populations are much less studied when it comes to these kinds of things than tropical climate populations and temperate climate populations. Uh, And, you know, the work that's been done on cold climates is, is pretty old. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's only a, a couple of other folks who've been doing it, uh, in Russia in particular, at least from an anthropological perspective. Uh, but the work before that is like quite old and very, like very from outdated. the
0: thirties and forties you were saying, right. Yeah. I was listening to your episode with Gabby LaPera on anthrobiology, and I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, we want to talk about equity and we want to talk about all of these things, but really like that begins with getting more data on these underserved under researched populations that we're maybe drawing mm-hmm. conclusions about or you know that have just as equal of um fulfilling incredible lives that we should be studying and understanding how like you said how their bodies are mm-hmm. working in these extreme yep. temperatures extreme temperatures mm-hmm. And then also something I'm really, I want you to tell everyone is like, how you decided on a particular like country to do your research in, because I thought it was pretty funny. <laughs> well,
1: it's just like, you know, it's one of these serendipity stories. Yeah, um, And it's, always the use, it's the it's realities. It's the reality of, the of anthropology. It. And you know, anyone here who's listening, who is thinking of going to grad school or is in grad school, it is really fucking hard to start a field site from scratch, like hard. And you need to have a lot of patience and you need to understand that this is a a very long process and it is going to feel like it's going to fail at any moment until it just doesn't and then it kind of comes together and it gels and that that that's true for me um and so i always love using the same pun that i cold emailed researchers in norway sweden and finland um Uh, I I know that, you know, political and diplomatic relations in Russia are not the the easiest. And so I I didn't bother actually reaching out to anybody in Russia, but I reached out to folks in Norway, Sweden, and Finland. So your typical Scandinavia, Uh, Sweden shut the door on me, like immediately, like what you're doing is unethical. I was like, whoa, (laughs) I I have never been accused of that. And I, I don't. I don't know why i have just been accused of that Mm -hmm. is you know we have to go through rigorous ethical screening procedures to do these kinds of studies norway was kind of interested but like eh, they just weren't like they weren't enthusiastic about in any way um but then researchers in finland were and so that's that that was the line i decided to pursue and you know it's gone well just had another paper accepted today on on some of that work in in finland uh and hopefully have two more that are in the works to to be coming out as well. So that's 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 literally it. But I think I was doing trips to Finland for three years before a single data point was ever collected. And so when I say it is a long wow. process, it yeah. is. And as you know, as a new faculty member, I don't have tenure. There's no security measures for me. Mm-hmm. And it, it's very scary doing that. And part of me would say, I would suggest not. <laughs> not taking that route, Uh, but it's been fruitful now, like, you know, it's come to bear and uh, I'm very glad I took the time and effort to do so. And my collaborators are just been absolutely fantastic to work with. And I, I got super lucky with them for sure.
0: That's incredible. So what in particular research questions are you asking, you know, about these these cold climate populations? What are you investigating?
1: Yeah, so kind of the the initial thing was was pretty limited in scope at first. Just we wanted to make sure, you know, the reindeer herders I work with were okay with the the, the methods I was using and all of that. And, and you know, that's always a touchy process, especially because these populations have, have a, have a memory of like white folks coming in and kind of unethically collecting data. Uh, and so it, you have to be, you know, really sensitive and aware, uh, you know, along the way and not be asking a whole bunch upfront and they have yeah, to be, and not be exploiting them. them. Exactly. Uh, and so it was pretty limited to physiological measures. Although my collaborators in Finland, one of them does a lot of ethnography. So she included survey based ethnographic studies, but I was, limitedly interested in their energy expenditure, so looking at their resting metabolic rates, which are the the bare minimum amount of energy someone basically uses to lay on the floor and do nothing for a day, Um, and uh, there's some good evidence that cold climate populations show high resting metabolic rates, and the idea is is that they need to produce more heat because they are losing a lot of heat to their cold environment. Uh, And then I wanted to look at total energy expenditure, so all of the calories you use in a day for all of your activities uh, because the reindeer herders are very active. Uh, reindeer yeah. herding is a physically demanding occupation, and they're doing it in a pretty harsh climate. Uh, and so I was kind of curious of what that energy expenditure looked like. And then the other aspect of it was brown adipose tissue, uh, so or brown fat, as I'll call it for the rest of this time. Uh, and that's a kind of fat that burns just to keep you warm during mild cold exposure. Mm. And it Hibernating mammals have it. So bears put on a ton of brown fat right before they hibernate and they use that to keep warm throughout the winter. Uh, And human babies are born with a bunch on their chest and all along Mm. their backs. And it was thought that once those babies burned through that brown fat, that like, that was it. Humans didn't have it anymore. Turns out that's not true. Uh, it turns out that adults, adult humans can have it and do have it. Uh, and the idea is, is that uh, adult humans from cold climates might be under selective pressure to have more brown fat than, say, other populations. Uh, and this is still really recent like, you know, 10, 15, 20 years kind of recent. And yeah we don't have a good grasp of the, of the populational variation of brown adipose tissue presence and activity. And so like any data point we get right now is a new and exciting data point because it's such a small amount. And so, yeah, those were the, the basic questions. And then like all that is getting either has been written up and published or is about to be, uh, kind of submitted for, for review. And then the next direction of that is kind of continuing those those, those questions because I'd like to expand the sample size, um, and and that research kind of opened up new questions about the role of thyroid hormone and its relationship to resting metabolic rate and possibly even pregnancy among women, uh, because the women in this population had super high metabolic rates, but men didn't, so it was weird. Um, Normally, like I, like I feel like the other way around. It is exactly the other way yeah. around. Um, that like even when you don't control for body size, women were exhibiting higher metabolic rates than men. It was just bizarre. Um, and I have a couple of hypotheses related to both climate change and pregnancy, but I need a much bigger sample size to actually take a look yeah. at that. Uh, and then, as I had just said, the climate change part, that's gonna be the next big direction of this project if it gets funded for with, with grants, is looking at really the embodiment of climate change. Uh, the Arctic has experienced climate change much more rapidly rapidly and acutely than other parts of the world. You don't hear about it as much because it's not like there are massive forest fires Mm -hmm. or, you know, know, the kinds of things that you hear about all the time, but they have seen drastic temperature increases, major icing events, and it does directly impact the reindeer herders and their livelihood. It makes herding more difficult. Um, And so I'm, I'm, I'm very curious to to see if we can pick up biological and cultural signals of how climate change is impacting this population. And so that's going to be the the next research arc uh, with this project.
0: That's so cool. That's so fascinating. I guarantee that that's going to get funded because that's what that's the the
1: first round. We'll see if it does. not I mean, that's the way grants work. You often have to do one or two rounds, but yeah, we'll see. We'll see.
0: (laughs) I think that's going to be very imperative work, just given where we are at, you know, in Mm -hmm. our and, the I clock's mean, be- ticking.
1: And because the, you know, populations in the Arctic have actually been dealing with this longer than a lot of other places in the world, they have found some really great ways to be resilient and we can learn from that yes. and we should respect that experiential knowledge.
0: Yes. I think too, it's really cool that your research is on a present population um, and it's still encompassing like the biology and the physiology. I think It's really cool. And I think there'll be a lot of lessons to be learned as you continue your research. Um, I'm curious, what are these data points that you're collecting? Is it samples from the participants?
1: So resting metabolic rate, uh, there are some samples. So I get urine samples for uh, the the total energy expenditure. We use a technique called doubly labeled water. Uh, I have uh, finger pricks to get glucose and cholesterol uh, levels. And then for the metabolic rate stuff, um, basically I make them lay down and do nothing. And I put this mask over their face and it it measures how much oxygen they're consuming and how much carbon dioxide they're producing. Uh, and that's just for resting metabolic rates. And then for brown adipose tissue, they, they wear these cool suits. Um, they're the inner linings of bomb suits, like military bomb suits. Um, and so you have to imagine like the giant yeah. bomb suit that like these these military folks will wear like in the desert, they get really hot in these bomb suits. Mm-hmm. And so the, they, they're wearing like an inner sweatsuit that's lined with tubing and it's connected to a pump that's pumping cold water through the tubing to keep these folks from overheating in the military bomb suits. But for me, it means I can buy one of these tube suits and, you know, have people wear them and I can control cold, expose them. So I can control the temperature. Oh, yeah. They don't have to get wet. They don't have to go outside all of these things. Mm-hmm. They can still be laying down. I can make yeah. them cold and I can measure the resting metabolic rate at room temperature and at cold temperature and get a direct comparison under very similar circumstances. And then I also take thermal images, um, up here at the shoulder, uh, which is where Brown adipose tissue is in adult humans and you you can actually see like bright up glow spots on the thermal imaging camera where brown adipose tissue is active and you compare it to a spot on the chest where there is not brown fat and like it's cold (laughs) it's cold there but at the chest but not at the shoulder um yeah no it's science toys are the best toys (laughs) the thermal imaging camera is my favorite toy to play with i won't lie
0: yeah. We had um, a primate ecologist on and she's like, yeah, I, I run around the forest and I catch the monkey pee in the cups. And I just think that like really talking about like the samples and the data, I don't know. I just find it so cool because obviously like my focus is forensic anthropology and bioarchaeology. I don't know everything about every subdiscipline, So it's like something like that, like that is brand new to me. That is so cool. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure our listeners like will find it just as equally fascinating. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um yeah, I enjoy it. And honestly, I enjoy the methods too. Um uh, Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a cool process. And I also I really love Finland in the winter. It is I was gonna like, ask. Like people are like, how do you deal with the darkness? I'm like, the darkness is easy. It's the 24 hours of daylight in the summer that messes me up. <laughs> like, yeah. that really messes with me. But everyone there is so good about huga. you know, the 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 whole like comfort cozy feeling that the the scandinavian term and you've got like really cute warm twinkling lights and candles and warm drinks and blankets and all of that yeah um love it and it's gorgeous like the snow i i have never seen frozen fog before until finland and that sounds scary (laughs) they they had fog and it froze and it freezes onto the trees and it's like the most amazing winter wonderland you can ever imagine i've never seen anything like that before in my life and i grew up in michigan which is Mm. a pretty cold place and we had lots of snow but never have i seen anything like that and i just thought it was i don't know it it's a happy place for me
0: yeah as so i would love to go to finland has your husband gotten to go at all with you
1: No, Uh, like we always talk about it of just like mm -hmm. are there ways that we can somehow make this work and it's always the joke is there a way I can write him into a grant yeah Yeah. it's it's hard for him to get time off work because when I go I'm gone for a long period of time um and then who would take care of the cats if my husband was not Mm. home I would take the cats with me too I think they would hate it but (laughs) it's a long plane ride for cats oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, so sadly he is not, but like, and I have not been able to go back for over two years now uh, because Mm -hmm. when there was the transition from Albany to Notre Dame, so I didn't do any field work in between. And then, you know, within six months of me starting this new position, COVID happened. And so everything is shut down. And I I mean, who knows who, and it doesn't feel ethical to be like barging in and collecting data on people Mm -hmm. right now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yep um gotta gotta respect gotta respect the boundaries and also you know all of our own just health and safety and you know these uh, again these are underrepresented under researched populations that we don't need to be further you know yeah. uh they don't exposing put their
1: lives at risk my dad is yeah. not that important no.
0: yep yep i was <laughs> i was just chatting to um pippa kenner who is who people are going to hear that episode before so the listeners will know what i'm talking about she works with indigenous alaska Alaskan mm-hmm. populations. She works for the Fish and Wildlife Department. Mm-hmm. So they talk with them about, um, you know, uh, catches and subsistence and what, how many, much resources they need to su- mm-hmm. sustain their their traditional practices. And then how that all got flipped on its head in COVID. How do we not then go into these communities and give them COVID, but we still want to make sure that they are, you know, getting the access to the fish they need, getting access to the resources yeah. they need. So she was saying, oh, and these are also um, communities that don't have a lot of internet access don't always have Mm -hmm. technology and those are similar you know landscapes just in their um Mm -hmm. how far away they are from how wi-fi for example yeah Yeah. strong infrastructure infrastructure. that's a great great word yeah i would love to touch on as well the podcast that you co-host and you produce in collaboration with the human biology association which that's awesome that you have them to connect and further distribute your podcast um, so, I'd love to learn a bit about the goals. And then also, you could tell us a bit about um,
1: your co host. Yeah. So, the podcast, The Sausage of Science. So, Dr. Fur, Dr. Fur, that's amazing. <laughs> Dr. Christopher Lynn. I'm going to tell him I called him Dr. Fur, and he's going to find it hilarious. I love it. We've been friends since, I don't know, 2014 or something. I don't know it's going on seven, eight years. Um, and, you know, you meet colleagues at conferences. Yeah. And I think he actually, Got in touch with me first, and I have no memory of this, uh, because in my final year of graduate school, I won the Human Biology Association Award for Best Student Talk, um, Mm -hmm. and he was the person in charge of like getting information from the winners. Uh, I, again, no memory of this, uh, but then he was also part of a writing group uh, that was kind of organized through the Human Biology Association that I wormed my way into so I could get some help on getting my first publications out and all of that stuff. And so we became friends that way and just kind of maintained the friendship. And like one day, I think he texted me, he's like, hey, I'm thinking of doing a podcast and I bet we could link it to the Human Biology Association. Do you wanna help me do it? And I have a really hard time saying no to extra projects, hence Ruby's lab manual, <laughs> mm-hmm. any other of the number of things that you have you cited me doing <laughs> yeah. that a lot of people like just say no because they don't have time to do. Um, And I'm like, yeah, sure, why not, let's do it. And it kind of became, there's a couple of goals. Like the selfish thing is that we get to talk to collaborators and cool people that are in our field and hear about their research, but also hear about them as humans and you know, and you know what their lives are like because peer review articles never tell you the behind the scenes stories about, you know, disasters overcome during field work or how they even decided to get a PhD and, and then mm-hmm. become a professor. And there's such a range of variation of stories and how people get to the place that they are and the point that they are in their careers. And we thought it'd be really important to one, highlight the cool work that we do, to give, give it a public face um, yeah. and, you know, highlight to people whose tax dollars fund the grants that fund Mm -hmm. our work. Like that's incredibly important. But then three, put a human face on us. Like we're scientists. We have pets. We have weird hobbies. Mm -hmm. We, we binge watch shows on Netflix just as much (laughs) as everybody else. And so, you know, we, we thought it was really important to do that as well. And we'd like to be able to kind of balance highlighting more, more junior, individuals and colleagues in the field, because they don't often get as much press and, and mm-hmm. you know whatnot, uh, as well as like the, the big names in the field who've yeah. been around for a long time. So we have this balance of like the well-established folks who have done work for years, and then the new and up and coming folks who are gonna be steering the direction of our field for decades yep. to come. I think, honestly, I feel like if you
0: would have said that and not have known that I didn't listen to anthropology podcasts before starting my own, like that's those, all of those goals, I would look almost verbatim are exactly how I feel. And mm-hmm. I think I've had the opportunity to have some of my, uh, like people in my cohort that are undergrads on and be able to just have them be in this like safe interview space and get that experience. Like they, it has all been like via zoom, but still get that like experience yeah. in a really safe space with someone who, you know, has their best interests in, in mind and, um, give them that experience to, to interview and to communicate their research. It's, so cool and i'm glad that you guys as well who are seasoned professionals are giving more junior <laughs> scholars that that opportunity
1: i laugh at the whole seasoned professionals because i believe today uh, a colleague in my department we were just joking that we still feel like kids oh. and someday we will feel like grown ups but today is not that day damn it <laughs> yeah
0: Um, Well, my last question for you is what else would you love to share with our listeners about your life, your hobbies, how you're doing during this pandemic? Maybe what's getting you through any books? Oh my goodness.
1: So I am, I I, I am a big reader and I I adore reading and sometimes I consume books so quickly, I often forget what I have read. And so, you know, usually what I end up talking about is the thing that's in with me right now, or the thing that I just recently read. But a few things have gotten me through this pandemic. Um, One, my my number of house plants has like, (laughs) rapidly expanded. (laughs) You can see this money tree behind me. That's a, uh, it used to be at my house, but we keep the house too cold, like year round. And Um, it was like, it was down to like 10 leaves at one point. And <laughs> yeah. like, I'm gonna take it to my office and see what happens. And now you can see how lush and beautiful it is. Mm-hmm. It's um, very cool. And you can't see the other ones by the window, but that's fine. But like, I have an obscene number of house plants at this point um, that has gotten me through. Uh, during the, you know, the real stay at home order lockdown, I got totally into my my backyard wildlife. And Ooh. like, I have cultivated a number of feral animals. like. We have families of raccoons who visit us nightly and I now feed possums, deer. There's currently a family of turkeys, like a mom and four chicks. (laughs) They're they're my little backyard dinosaurs. And I love (laughs) that so much. That's amazing. (laughs) You know, coming around, and you know, that little like head wobble thing. Um, Uh, And the birds, I, I feed the birds and the squirrels and the chipmunks. So I have a wide variety of wildlife that I have come to love and nurture as much as I can. I'm sure. Some people would contest that I am not nurturing them by feeding them, and they probably have a point that has gotten me through. And then as for reading, I am currently reading the Murder Bot Diaries. Ooh. And I highly recommend them. It is sci-fi. Um, and the first five books are short, they're like 150 pages a piece. Um, and then the other one is is bigger, and I don't really have a full thing, but like it's this human cyborg kind of hybrid that is in this world not considered a person and doesn't have the legal rights of a human being they are considered security robots that are meant to go with humans protect humans or be hired to kill humans hence the murder bot name and you get a bit more detail behind that and hopefully this is not too much of a spoiler no it's not because it's like within the first two pages you learn all of this um the murder bot in particular that is writing these diaries has like taken over its governor module that controls its behavior. And it's like gotten rid of that. So it's in control of itself. Um, that sounds really cool. <laughs> it's really cool. And like this murder bot is incredibly hilarious because it doesn't know how to deal with humans and it doesn't like emotions and human interaction. And when it gets anxious about a human interaction, I totally relate to this. Mm. It will literally go and walk to a corner face the wall and then start like re-watching its favorite tv show over and over again and like that is totally a coping mechanism for yeah. me like okay. I will have my favorite tv show on in the background because it is familiar and I know what to expect and it is comforting to me and I'm like shit I'm a murder bot <laughs> it's kind of crazy to me and like this individual this this murder bot hates humans but also finds them endearing. Some of them like become friends, but is still so incredibly annoyed by their decision making. And I'm like, oh, do I feel this? <laughs> I feel that this. That was so me hard. this week. That was me this week. That was me this oh, week. Read Oof. the Murderbot Diaries. You are yeah. going to just like immediately identify with the Murder Bot. And it's yeah. great. That's wonderful. Uh, yeah. So that, that's the series. I'll probably finish it uh, in the next week or so. And I just also read Project Hail Mary. Um, Hmm. which is by Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian. Uh, Oh, that movie, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and Project Hail Mary is going to be a movie as well. It's already got rights. Um, (laughs) And it was fantastic. Like... it it was one of those books that I stayed up way too late reading because I couldn't get out of it. So yeah. That's how I am with Kathy Reich's books. Mm
0: -hmm. She writes, she's the woman who inspired bones, the forensic mysteries, and she just put out a new one and I went through it in like two
1: days on my patio, just couldn't put it down. (laughs) And, uh, and then like more work, I've, I've also been digging into some of the older feminist human evolution literature as well. Oh. Um, and so I've been working my way through a lot of that stuff, which has been really enlightening and I've enjoyed it. That's awesome.
0: Well, yeah. thank you so much for taking the time to interview with me. It was a pleasure and I really enjoyed getting to know you better and learning about your research. And thank you so much for talking about topics that are, you know, really impactful and. I'm sure a lot of listeners will learn a lot from.
1: Here's hoping. And thank you for doing this. I mean, I know this is a lot of work and you were an absolute delight and incredibly prepared. So thank you so much for the opportunity to come on the show. Thank you.